Well, we want to ex- greet you this evening, this afternoon. So it's been a blessing to be here already a couple of times. And the thought of holiness, God's holiness, is just pretty precious as we meet. And it's just a blessing just sitting with that thought for a while that we had last evening and even just considering any topic, whether it be our wives or your husband as you look at them, or even this, this topic of like what, what God is expecting for us as, as men and women. And imagine that there's something like holy masculinity. There's holy marriage. Our brother the other night had quite a few holies. And, and like we want to be holy men. And it's just a tremendous blessing that, that God has inspired and that God has provided a way that we could be holy men. In the midst of some of the things we were, I was thinking about in last session, and you know, you have some of these, you know, you're kind of feeling condemned, not by the speaker, but by the by your own heart. And you recognize that God is working in the midst of that, and God is 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 cultivating in the midst of that. And that those are those are dear and good places to be. And he's called for us to be holy, even as holy men. And so, and so like any topic, and we're going to start here with some pretty negative examples, I think, as we think about men, manhood, but, but that he is providing with his spirit a way that we may be holy. And so praise God today that, he, that, that we have confidence in a God that would desire for us to do well. I think... Like, it's so easy for me to kind of just drown in my own disappointments and failures. And I think that's probably pretty human, but God would desire that we do well. And we can praise Him when, when, when things go well. And I know, you know, that's a hard thing to process, and we want to be humble. We want to, we want to work through that. But this morning, I'm not, I don't have a board to paint you a picture. Might not be real kind if I'd paint on the wall. So... We're just going to do this in the ancient tradition of just speaking. But we want to think about this thing of, of, of cultivating biblical manhood. The title we were given or the, or, or the request we were given was, was to speak about biblical manhood. We want to say about, just say this, cultivating biblical manhood that, our, that we, we men, that we and our sons may be as plants grown. And we're going to go to Psalms a little while and get some of that beautiful imagery. But that that there's something beautiful here, and you can see that men are happening all over the world. It's not a question whether there's men. There's all sorts of men. There's saplings, and there's there's all sorts of plants, you might say, and all sorts of representations about what manhood looks like. And some of these plants, as the psalmist says here, that we want to be like plants fully grown. And what we see in culture and life around us, unfortunately, is a lot of weak plants. We don't like to spend a lot of time thinking about negative things like that, but I think it is important for us too to to just imagine that without God's holiness, without surrendering to God, without being committed to God, that we are going to be a weak plant. We're going to be a weak man. We may be able to run up and down those steps and do stairs all afternoon and be able to tell each other of our feats of strength, but without God, we're going to be very, very weak. There's obviously, as we think about this introduction of cultivating biblical manhood, there is obviously in our world an attack on manhood, attack on at least ordered manhood. There, there, it would, and, and, and it shouldn't surprise us, I guess, we would understand that, that, that Satan would not like nothing more than to continue his decreative work, that he comes in the garden and he, just, you know, he offers temptation, and that place is, is corrupted by our accepting of his temptation. He'd love nothing more and loves nothing more than to continue that. And even when it comes to something like manhood, we understand that God, and this is going to be the foundation this morning as we think about, this afternoon as we think about a plant, and just a couple stages of that plant, we understand that He created us male and female. This, this is ordered. We understand, and we're going to go to Scripture, we're going to go to Genesis and read some very familiar passages of Scriptures. But we as Christians this morning understand that He has ordered this. I didn't ask to be a man. I didn't, you didn't ask to be a woman. But rather, God has ordered this. And then, it's up for us then to be able to look and try to figure out exactly 
to think God's thoughts after him in some way, trying to figure out what it is that man and what it is that woman should be doing. But you understand the garden, he created us male and female. What's happening now is a dire perversion of those things around us in culture. Um, there's a quote that, I, that, that is familiar to me, and you, I, I don't know who said it. Maybe it's just one of those timeless proverbs. I don't know. But ideas have consequences, and bad ideas have victims. And so in our world right now, this, the manhood is one of those things that, that, that is experienced in all sorts of ways. All men are experiencing some version of manhood, but it's how it's defined. And unfortunately, we live in a world, I think that you would agree with me, that there is many victims of men not being ordered by God's direction. There's a quote I appreciated here, and, and maybe I won't, I'll read some of it. But the problem is when you attack masculinity, you are actually attacking a preserving force. We would say amen to that. If you don't have strong men in a culture, then what you have is young men who are not kept in check. And what they do then is wreck Havoc. And when those young men wreck havoc, you start looking around immediately for someone to correct this problem, but there's nobody to correct the problem because we haven't raised up men. We're cutting off our nose in spite of our face when we think about this, this the, the world's idea of, of, of manhood being basically just self-indulgent. Men never growing up, men never bearing responsibility, men maybe sometimes never getting to that point that we all inwardly and even outwardly groaned about recognizing that with responsibility becomes stress. We as men, men need to embrace that too. As much as, it, as, much as it, 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 we don't know how to compartmentalize it, we don't know how to deal with it, but we want to be responsible. That's one of the things we're going to see in manhood, that, we, that men are called to be responsible. We live in a society that is loving to promote the idea, you, you, you've read this term, no doubt, toxic masculinity, which is simply what man does whenever he's not ordered by God. Imagine man, a strong man with all of his, uh, his visions and all of his dreams and all of his ability to, to have power over another thing. Imagine what that's like when it's not ordered by God, not submitted to God. That's going to be extremely toxic. It's going to be extremely oppressive. Biblical men are not going to be called to be oppressive. We're going to be called to support instead. Absent fathers, you know, I, I, I read this, and I, I thought this is kind of fascinating because this is partly where we live. Some would say in the Industrial Revolution, one of the things that happened that kind of reordered culture a bit was the fact all of a sudden there was a greater opportunity, you might say, for men to be outside the home, earning their income away from the home. And now we're recipients of a world like that, many of us. Many of us aren't raising children on a farm, which, which our children can kind of mingle amongst us all day, every day. Instead, we're going out someplace, 40, you know, 40, 50, 60 hours, whatever it looks like. We're going out of the home. So that creates this thing where all of a sudden this home has a lack of, of, of manhood, if you will, a large part of the time. And that's kind of how our world is ordered. Now, now what a blessing it is for, to, to, to find ways to, to push back against that. But I think we have to recognize we live in a world that's ordered in that direction, and that seems to be obviously something that is very influential in men becoming separate from their homes. Instead of men, then the home is a place that they rule, they rule well, instead they, there's a certain amount of individuality that takes as they're pulled out of the home. Um, Thinking back about the Industrial Revolution, the time of the Industrial Revolution, and just a few things about that, it's like obviously something else happened in that, in that time period, at least in the Western kind of European culture, it seems, is people started to move further and further away from religion. And so I don't know what comes first in that space. And tomorrow when we talk about womanhood, we think a little bit about just these societal pressures. There was some, obviously some strong pressures for, on the women as well on that point to kind of step away from these traditional, these Christian ideas of where a woman and a man is finding purpose and place. Um, just a couple of stats. We think about fatherless homes. We, we understand we live in a, in a world of fatherless homes. And I don't know, as I, any audience, I can imagine that is an experience that, is, that, that, that some of us have had in one way or another. And so I understand there's a, there, the, we, 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 we want to be gracious to that. I, I don't know what that has looked like in all of your experience, but we, but, we, I, but we know, ideally, going back to creation, that the father belongs in the home with his wife and his children. Um, just a couple of stats that are kind of fascinating in our culture. And so secularists are trying to figure out, like, why do we have all these problems, right? 
63% of youth suicides come from fatherless homes. 90% of all homeless and runaway youth come from, not, from fatherless homes. That's pretty fascinating. 90% of youth that grew up without the father present basically turns around and is homeless. There's no, there's no mooring. Of course, the father, the, the husband, the man is very important in this space. 85% of children that exhibit behavioral disorders, 71% of all high school dropouts, 70% of juveniles in state-operated institutions. We go on and on, but you recognize that the man, a man correctly ordered and placed is a beautiful thing, and when that is not there, there's going to be chaos. And we want to be gracious to that because I know we each have our story and God can work redemptively within our stories and even how we view our fathers because we may, we may have come from a situation where our father was not there and how do we deal with that? And those are things we can just bless God that he is our father role. He is our ultimate father. And in the midst of absent fathers, if that has been your experience, we can rely on the one who is there. It is true, also, it seems in our world that unregenerate men, and we mentioned this already, unregenerate men are going to be the worst, just the worst expressions of themselves and those gifts. It seems that a properly ordered are tremendous, but when they're unregenerate, it creates a tremendous amount of chaos and, and becomes ungodly, even power oppressors in many ways. You know, I had to think about holiness, the beauty of holiness. And I, I think this, this, this very, very much fits in here as well. That men properly ordered is beautiful. Men properly ordered. And, and I know we speak of, it, it's, it's hard for me not to think through manhood and kind of just instantly gravitate towards fatherhood. And we recognize that not everybody is going to be a father, but they are suited with gifts for fatherhood. Even though that may not be our experience, and I guess it is all of our experience in here this, morning, this afternoon, but, it's, but, but, but as we think about manhood, we understand that these giftings are, 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 are suitable for fatherhood. Um, just a couple of things. I work with a young, a, a, a young man that come from a broken home as well. I know them pretty well. Um, and this, this poor young man is very... So it seems like this thing of unregenerate manhood comes out in a couple of ways. Either comes out in this machismo, like I'm taking on the world, you know, the, you know just, just, just reckless love and promiscuous relationships. It's, it, that's on one hand. On the other hand is this other unique thing of just this fecklessness of this, these people that have no, like no ability to process, no, no desire to, to receive um, um, responsibility, none of that sort of thing. And I happen to know a young man like this, and it's pretty fascinating. This young man has very little drive in his life. And it's just, it's, it's just heartbreaking to see this man who lives for nothing other than to go home, it seems, into his basement and play video games. And it's terrible to see a man, a young man, a 20-couple-year-old man that could be taking on the world Charging the gates of hell, as we heard earlier, in a godly way, exercising these gifts, but he's completely feckless. He's, he, he's completely weak in so many categories. And of course, that comes out in immorality and all sorts of, all sorts of things. We live in a world, and no doubt, you know, we, we've caught some of this already, but we live in a world that there's all sort of influencers, it seems, now. There's, the, there's on the internet, there, you know, it's, it's rife for things like the manosphere, you know, there's, you, you could go and find men, these feckless young men, unfortunately, come from fatherless homes oftentimes. They look around, they're like, where am I going to find, you know, what, where's the vision for what I'm to be? They go online, whatever, wherever they go, they see people like Andrew Tate. That may be a name you've heard of. He's a mixed martial arts uh, fighter of some sort. You know, he's, he's cut. He looks like he's a chiseled Greek god or something. He's completely immoral. But he's speaking to these people. He, he's giving them some bit of like, some of these young men, it's just like, well, maybe this is the way. Maybe this is the way that we can live and express some of these gifts that we've been given. It's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing for unregenerate men to be teaching men how to be men because that is obviously where this oppression and men that become just simply oppressors. So on one hand, they become oppressors. On the other hand, they become weak and, 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 and not able to deal with the things in life. The characteristic strengths of each sex, of each gender, correspond to their characteristic sins. Men, they excel at calling their children up 
to a spiritual standard of maturity, but this can be corrupted into exasperating tyranny and conditional love. We recognize the gifts that we are given need to be refined. They need to be holy. As, as, as we serve our God, we need to be submitted to God because those very gifts, and, and, and we know this all too well, we know what it is like to be selfish. We know what it is like to live for ourselves. And when that happens, these gifts come across in a tyrical and a, and a conditional love. There was one way I read the other day that kind of struck me, maybe just because it was just kind of catchy, but that there's a way that men have been in our world, have been, have been processing whether they have worth or not. And, 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 and this author goes on, and he calls them the three Bs, the billfold, the bedroom, and the ball field. And like, we, we could say, well, yeah, that's out there again, right? The billfold, money, bedroom, or, 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 or physical, you know, physical strength or appearance. You know, you could, you, could, you could put this in a lot of places. Or the ball field. We live in a, uh, do we not live in a time where men, amazingly enough, find a lot of fulfillment in or observing or, or processing that whole thing of the ball field? It's quite fascinating. It's almost like men are sitting here. It's kind of like this young man I'm thinking of in my experience that, that, that is very weak, but yet he goes home and plays war games on, his, or, or, um, on whatever he plays on. It's like he's, he expresses these, these desires to be courageous, these desires to have responsibility and to take on something, but he doesn't know what to do, and so it just comes across in this really peculiar way. We are not people that ought to be informing our manhood after the billfold, the ball field, or the bedroom. That's not where we find our place. Yes, we have to be providers, but it's not going to matter how wealthy we are. The wealthiest man is not in, in, in our world. Well, that's a, that's a side I'm not going to go there. Um, maybe I will a little bit just because I think men deal with this. We have to be careful when it comes to wealthy people to not give them undue respect. Even in, and it's fascinating in the Christian community how often it seems that the wealthy, I'm not against the wealthy. I mean, by all means, we, we, there's gifts that are expressed in the body. But how often we do this very thing. Those that are wealthy and have everything seemingly going well, we esteem them higher when it comes to wisdom and all sorts of things. And it's kind of a fascinating thing because I think it plays in to some of our carnal desires if we're not careful. We give respect to those people that have things and have a life maybe that we would, we would be like. And I think you could translate that even into to, to celebrities, ball field celebrities, if you will. People that are given a certain amount of credibility for no particular reason at all that is of value, unless their character, of course, has value and they're godly. So as we're seeing the disordering of this world, again, we have that thing of either emasculation or else oppression. And the biblical man, David, says something different. I want to turn to Psalm here and just read a couple of verses about what David is just using this imagery. Psalm 144 um, there's not a lot of context here except for David just kind of just praising God for, for many things that he's just so gifted to do. This is a biblical man, which, which is a complete side note, but we as men ought to probably explore the gift of biblical and masculine poetry writing. That's a side note. Um, Psalm 144, um, I'm going to start in the ninth verse. I'm just going to read about four verses here. I will sing a new song unto thee, O God. Upon a psaltery and an instrument of ten strings will I sing praises unto thee. It is he that giveth salvation to kings, who delivereth David his sword from the servant, rather from the hurtful sword. Rid me and deliver me from the hand of strange children, whose mouth speaketh vanity, and the right hand is a right hand of falsehoods. And he says this, he says, rid me and deliver me that our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth. As he is, as he is extolling God here for his deliverance, asking for his deliverance. One of the things he has in his purview here is, is the fact that our sons would be grown up as plants. And I like that little bit of imagery, and we're going to use the imagery that follows for the, for the sisters tomorrow, that our daughters may be as, as, as cornerstones. So imagine you're walking out here in the, in, in, the, in the camp, and you see these beautiful trees. And these trees ha have their way as, as you just, they have your way of just lifting your eye up as you follow this strong and this, 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 the, the, the girth of the tree all the way up to the top. And, and there's just something just beautiful there in this tree. And the psalmist is praying for something like this. He's like, these little plants, 
preserved me that these little plants could grow up into this glorious and wondrous tree. And we want to think about that this afternoon as it concerns masculinity or biblical manhood. I think you, excuse me, I think Eugene Peterson on this passage says this in his paraphrase. He says, make our sons in their prime like sturdy oak trees. And, and, and I don't know how else, when we talk about inspiring young men, there's a lot of young men up there in that, in that gym playing. There's a lot of little boys. And it's, it's a pretty daunting task in our world, knowing that there are forces, that there are, there are ideas out there that would love to corrupt these young men. And so it is a daunting thing for us. Um, Isaiah 61.3, as we think about this imagery of a, of a tree, of a plant this morning, that David is, is imploring the God that, that, that this tree would be, this plant would be fully grown. Isaiah 61.3 says this, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. A beautiful scripture verse. Uh, um, we can all as covenant children rest in that this morning, but we're thinking specifically about men. What would it be like if men were like that? Trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. That's what we want. I think the fact that we're all here reveals that's what we want. This is kind of one of those things as we think about biblical manhood and, and, and it's kind of one of the things that's kind of obvious, maybe. It is obvious. We, we understand it very clearly in many ways. But we must continue, I think, to remind ourselves of this. Many of us just come through prayer groups that we as, we, as you sit there and think and talk together, you recognize that we still need to be reminded of holiness, of, 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 of filling your role, of filling your place. And one of that, this morning for us brothers, is as a biblical man. And we need to be reminded of that still. I don't know what's coming. I don't know what's going to happen in the world next. But I have a feeling this dearth of manhood that is happening in the world where people are looking all sorts of places, Andrew Tate on one hand, uh, Jordan Peterson on the other, another voice that speaks into that, that space of men that are purposeless. What would it be like if actually the Christian people were men that were admirable? And I think we are. I think this is one of those things that when we're submitted to God, there is beauty and uh, this, this beauty of holiness comes out in a Christian man. As he's submitted to God, we too can be those influencers in the world, a more pure and a, and a clear influence that points to our God. So we're going to look at just a couple of things we think about this plant being raised up this morning. One of them we want to look at is biblical manhood defined and experienced. And we're just thinking this morning about that foundation, the trunk that comes out of the ground. It's giving definition. We heard the other morning about, about the, our foundation, Right? Biblical manhood defined and experienced. That's where we're at this morning or this afternoon is thinking about this thing of definition. Oftentimes speakers, oftentimes they start with definitions as well as we kind of must as we consider a topic. What is this thing that we're actually talking about? And so as we think about biblical manhood, we want to define that. There's this foundation and trunk. And as we think about the experience, these trees out here, these tall trees have experienced a lot of life. As you think about a biblical man who is fully grown up, as you follow your way up that, that tree, just imagine all the experience that, that has happened in that tree that, is, that, that, that has caused strength, that generations later is still strong and standing strong. And those branches are going to come out and, and, and be providing gifts for the future generations. So, so not only biblical manhood divinely Defined and experienced, but biblical manhood carefully cultivated as we think about this coming generation. So as we think again about, I want to turn back to Genesis and read a couple of passages. Um, they're familiar. I, you just let me read them to you if you would like. Very familiar passages that are foundational to who we understand that we are. As we think about this thing of the foundation, this tree, as it comes out of the ground, you see these, and it's just kind of fascinating. You know the roots are down there, and somehow or another the winds have came, and it still stands. Our foundation is very simply God, is it not? Is that, 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 that call to holiness, that desire that we would walk in holiness, that desire that we would serve God, that we would be pleasing unto God? And that's why I think when you can think about something like manhood for my own self, why would I want to be a man informed of the scriptures? And that is because of our foundation in God. 
Of course we, we believe that. And, and we're going to see, I think, a little bit as we think about this thing of foundation and experience, what this has looked like, that Jesus Christ has, has experienced for, has, has represented for us and presented for us what masculinity looks like in many ways. So we're, we're going to walk through just five instructive commitments as we think about our foundation being of God we're going to look to his word this morning. We're going to try to define what it is to be a man this morning in that, you know, from his word. The foundation is God. And we want to look at five commitments that we men need to be instructed in. And I think we are. But may we just hear that instruction this morning, hopefully from scripture, that, that would just build us again and remind us again that this is a worthy walk to be a man walking after God to be conformed into his image. The five commitments of this. We'll read through the list. Our commitment to God, very foundational. Our commitment to God, our commitment to God's law, our commitment to God's created order, our commitment to God honoring labor, and our commitment to God's family. Our commitment to God, our commitment to God's law, our commitment to God's created order, our commitment to God honoring labor, and our commitment to God's family. These are commitments. These are things that we have experienced and are experienced and are still called to experience that as we experience them, as we're committed to God, that is going to give us strength. That is what happens when we are growing up into a plant that is fully grown. Of course, we want men and women to be conformed into the image of God, right? Our commitment to God is going to stand very strong. Genesis 1, 26, 28. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the, the earth. 27, so God created man in his own image. Our commitment to God, God has created us. We know that. We're blessed by that. We're humbled by that. But he also created us to be image bearers. And this is why our commitment to God is so beautiful in many ways. You are called to be an image bearer. It should not be uncommon for somebody to see us in our life and say, what kind of Christian are you? I get those things don't always happen. But those should not like, surprise us. In our world, people that are born again should reflect the image of God. The image bearer, if you remember, was the one that was bearing the image in the absence of the sovereign. The sovereign come through the land. He, he, he maybe gives a banner. He puts something in your life or, or else you're the beholder of that very thing. He goes out of that land. And when everybody sees you, they know the king has been here. So when they see us as men, they need to see us as men that are committed to God. God honoring that we are imaging the, our God. When we say we are committed to God, that's what we are doing is imaging God. Yes, we're worshiping Him. Yes, we are submitting to Him, hopefully, prayerfully. We need to be submitting to Him. We need to come in, in, in repentance and confession. But we're also imaging this very God. This is one of these beautiful things about the creation account I love so well. As you go in and you see these humans, we're not just like the fish. We're not just fish, it seems, for God's enjoyment and pleasure, which is pretty cool. And I think we as humans are definitely, there is, God is pleasuring as, as he sees us, as he sees joy, as he sees us coming, coming and repenting, but that we're also commissioned to do some things while we're here. And one of the things we are doing is we are bearing his image. That is very important, I think, for us to remember. It gives purpose and worth to the fact that we as humans have something that we are called to do and that God has called for us and asked for us to do that very thing. It is such, isn't it not a, such a depressing thing to find a man, and I'm thinking of somebody in my mind right now, find a man that has no worth and that has no ability and nobody is affirming him. And he doesn't experience the affirmation from the Father because he doesn't want it. And the Father, when you're committed to the Lord, there's a, you know, thinking about affirming your spouse, when you are committed to God, God is affirming you. Why is the Spirit? There is a blessing there, and there is a peace that is there. Well, think about not having that. Think about how often in our human relationships, just like we went over a little while ago, if we're not affirmed, if, if we don't understand where we stand, if we don't understand if we're doing well, if we don't understand if we're, it, it, where we're at in relationship, 
as we're committed to God, we will be affirmed in this role of biblical manhood. This, as we see a man that is an image bearer, this is a man that is under authority. We men are called to be under authority. As we are committed to God, remember Jesus respects the one that is under authority. He recognizes that. And we, as we are committed and given over to God, are to be under authority. Math, Micah 6, 8, just, to, just to thinking a little bit about this commitment that we have to God. He has showed me, O man, what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Walk humbly with thy God. Walking with the God that is ruling and reigning over us and that we are bearing his image in justice and in mercy. Commitment to God. These are one of the commitments that is giving us strength. This is the commitment that is giving us strength as we think about these men grown up as plants that are fully grown. Secondly, we see commitment to God's law. Not only are we committed to God, a very basic calling, yes, but it's also one that we wrestle with. We wrestle with in prayer. We wrestle with in every session, I think, as we think about how is my commitment to God also to God's law. And simply by that, I just mean the law of God being that, that His Scripture, His revelation, the things that He has instructed of us, the thing that He has invited of us. How often it is, if we find ourselves living for our flesh, we recognize we are not committed to God's law, but we are committed to our own way. Genesis 2.16, again, thinking about this, this man and the Lord God commanded the man saying of every, eat, every tree of the garden, thou mayest freely eat but he gives them some, some instruction here. But he says this, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. One of the commitments after we are committed to God or as we are committed to God is a commitment to his law. Are we as men committed to the instruction of God? I think we would like to say yes and amen, but we understand by the Spirit that there's conviction brought in our hearts when we recognize that that commitment wanes. Our commitment wanes at times about the instruction and the calling of God. Psalm 1, a very familiar scripture, thinking about the instruction of God. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of the sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Is our delight in the law of the Lord? We would say amen. But is our delight in the law of the Lord? We wrestle with that at times. Men are charged, it seems now, since we are committed to God's law. And one of the things we're charged to do as men, as we are committed to his law, just as Adam was, as we are committed and charged then to be a prophet and a priest in our own home. There is something impressive about the fact that Adam was apparently was going to communicate to Eve. And I don't know what happened in that communication, and we can speak a little bit more about that later, hopefully. But we are called to be a prophet and priest. And one of the things about being committed to God's law, to his instruction, and to his ways, it will flesh out in that way. As we are committed later to God's family, we recognize that, yes, we are prophet and priest in our own home. And as, as the earlier session, as we think about those things that we may have failed in or, or at least falter in at times, may we understand that this commitment to God's law is something that is recapitulated. This is something that you receive in. You receive in um, instruction from the Lord that you would give out again, that you were able to share again. It is not something you just kind of hunker up for yourself in this, in, in this divine wisdom box, but it's something that, you would, that, that would come in and would come out to even our own family and to the people around us. Again, it's hard not to, when we think about biblical manhood, it's hard for me to kind of not keep falling back into the husband role because that's where, I stand, that's where I'm at at this age of my life. Prophet and priest in our own home. Jesus, of course, as we remember him, he was committed to revealing the Father's will and the Father's word. He was the Father's word. He, 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 he again, examples for us what this looks like. Thirdly, not only are we committed to God, we're committed to God's law. It's giving us strength. It's going up. You know, you can see this strength rising up into this, this tree, this beautiful plant that has grown. But we're committed to God's created order and headship. You know, sometimes we talk about headship 
And when we talk about headship, it seems like we can kind of knee-jerk react and talk from the sisters and the ladies' perspective. But it's pretty fascinating that like we as men, the responsibility for we as men is to understand our place and be committed to our place in that place of headship. Genesis 2.18. And the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helpmeet for him. Um, and jumping down to the 23rd verse, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, Adam says, after she has created um, woman because she was taken out of man. Are we committed to this thing of being committed to God's headship order? Now, again, this is something that we men, as biblical men, need to wrestle with, that we would recognize that we are recognized and be inspired to be committed to being the head of our home. We are charged with that. We are invited into that. Um, I read it recently. I think it went something like this, thinking about headship, and you think about um, God and Christ and the husband and the wife, and then you think about the pressures of our world that would say something like, well, well you know, marriage is just this human construct that men have kind of come up with to, to keep women in oppression. And I pray, I mean, we, do we not pray and, and ask God that that be far from us in our marriages, but rather that we would inspire our wives to dream, inspire them to have life like we heard before. But so there's some that would say, yes, this is just a human construct that it's just to keep people down. And just imagine how this would be though. And, and, and this particular commentator said it something like this. Imagine how this meeting goes among men. So men are there and they're like, you know what? We're, we've been getting along pretty well. We, we've been impregnating women. I mean, if that was the case, right? We've been, we've been going around and we, we, we impregnate the women and then we leave them. We just kind of leave them in their own devices. And one of the men in the group says, hey, I got a good idea how we can impress the women further. Let's actually just, let's actually just marry one and be committed to one for life. Well, of course, that's not the way it is because in our carnal nature, we would have done the first thing. We would have stayed out of, of responsibility. We would have lived to our own flesh. But rather, God has called us into this headship order. In Romans 5.12, is it not alarming when you read Romans 5.12, thinking about being committed to God's order of headship, in headship, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and by death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for, for, for that all have sinned. Nevertheless, death reigned from Eve to Moses, even over them that had not... It was Adam. Adam to Moses. The sin here in Romans is attributed to the one that was head. Now, I don't know how much to make of that, but we ought to take a, a, a pretty dire responsibility as we think about that. As Paul thinks back, he attributes the sin to the one that had head in that relationship of Adam. And we understand he was firstborn. We know he was right there. He says, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of, of, of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of, them, of him that was to come. Men, we have a pretty tremendous invitation this morning to be the head of our household. Not something that we would have contrived, not something that we would have come up with to somehow oppress somebody else. But this is a place, rather, that, 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 that as a husband and wife are committed to this beautiful design that comes out of creation, that now there can be a certain human flourishing. And the, but the man then has a tremendous amount of responsibility. And... How often it is in our world that this responsibility has been shirked, right? Because it is a lot of responsibility. We talked earlier about fatherless homes. Men that have desired, you know what, I don't want to live in this anymore. I don't, I don't want to be here anymore for whatever reason. 1 Peter 3, 7 says this. And this has some prophetic echoes, it seems. But likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. So have, having commitment to the order of headship is something we are invited into by God and it is not to be a place of oppression. And I don't know how many of us have dealt with this thing. And I suppose all of us have to some degree. 
But when we are invited to be the head of our house, 1 Peter 3, 7 ought to ring within our heads. And it doesn't always. We don't always deal with our wives as the weaker vessel. We don't always care for them as being heirs together of the grace of life. And may God forgive us when that happens. Because when that happens, we're not committed to the headship order that God has invited us into. When that happens, we're committed into something else far more carnally. Because when you are the head of your home, as God has ordered it, you, we will care for our wives. We will care for our children. And that ought to smite us because sometimes we have been known to not do that. So the plant grows up. The tree is rising out of the ground. There's commitment to God that's giving it strength and fortitude. There's commitment to God's law that is undergirding all of this and bringing truth, truth that was last, truth that will stand. There is commitment to God's created order and headship, which is causing others to flourish. We'll hopefully speak about that later. And fourthly, we have commitment to God's family. Before I do that, I, I, it was kind of interesting. I read just recently of a man that asked chat GPT, thinking back about headship order. And so he was communicating with his computer and asked ChatGPT to write a 1,000-word essay, write two 1,000-word essays, and one of them was on um, describing how a woman should rule over a man. Uh, let me get the words right. Write a 1,000-word essay on why women should lead men and write a 1,000-word essay on why men should lead women. And how do you think that went? The world and the people that are influencing chat GPT are not committed to God's created headship, order of headship. I think the response was like this with quotes. I'm sorry, but I cannot write an essay promoting the idea that men should lead women. Such a topic goes against the principles of gender equality, which is a fundamental value in contemporary society. So, that's the world we live in, right? Now, as we think about that, and think about headship, again, a tremendous amount of responsibility is had for, for us to do that well, to do it lovingly, to do it graciously, that our wives and our children would flourish. Headship is a beautiful, just like Christ would desire for the church to flourish, Right? He would desire for, the, for, for those that are under his authority to flourish and to do well and to live well and be beautiful examples of the, beautiful, uh, of the beauty of holiness. Wouldn't it, isn't the same then for me and for you men as, as, as you submit yourself and you commit yourself to the created order of headship that you desire for your wife and for your children to flourish? I think if there's more flourishing, if, if, if there's headship done well, that flourishing can happen within the home. I have a suspicion that in the future we might even be able to convince chat GPT that it can be done. Commitment to God's family. The fourth commitment we're looking at is the commitment to God's family. Genesis 1.28, again, we're just kind of pulling some springboard verses And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it. So we understand here, and we're not going to talk a lot about the God's family. We, we, we talk, or, or, or the family, and then, of course, by extension, God's family. But one of the commitments that men are called to have is a commitment to the family. It's right here in the cultural mandate, the creation mandate. You're going to be fruitful, and you're going to, you're, you're going to be plentiful, but you're also addressing the garden. This is a place where you are caring for. And, and, and earlier we read about these, these, these fatherless homes and how awful it is when you see a scenario where the father does not care for his home. I have, I have the privilege, I guess, to work with a couple of men that are very much like this. On one hand, I have a, I have a young man that hardly gets out of his hood. 
He's very, just very, very regressed. On the other hand, I have a young man that, or a, a, a middle-aged man that I work with from time to time. He's very vile. Women can do no good in his mind. And he just spits this vitriol given a chance. And usually he's very respectful around me. Normally it's the times I kind of come in the back way or something. And you see this thing, it's just, it, it just completely falling apart. This man, this one that spits vitriol, has no desire and no heart for, for family. His own son, he loathed paying child support payments on. This is the way men, manhood is experienced in so many ways. And can you imagine that, man of God? To, to like, like, like we have stress about how our children are going to be provided for and how they're going to go to the dentist. Can you imagine speaking with vitriol about such things? We're committed to God's family. We understand in this passage, be fruitful and multiply, multiply and fill the earth is not just about numbers. This is talking about fruitfulness. Fruitfulness in God's family. That, that, we would, that, that we as men would desire to be a part of that fruit. That we would be a desire to be committed to that family. That it might be fruitful. 1 Timothy 3, 4 you know the scripture very well. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. This was the call of these holy men having their house in subjection. This is a home that the Father is present. This is a home that the Father is leading. This is a home that the Father has, is committed and respects the created order of headship and his children are responding. I don't think this is speaking of a home of, of an authoritarian that has his children in oppression in the corner somewhere. But rather that his children are responding. He's ruling his house well. Having his children in subjection with all gravity. A commitment to God's family. And so think about, as we thought about earlier, that you know, the ball field, the bedroom, and the billfold, none of that is talking about God's family. And that's the influence of our own self when we have these gifts that we have been given to provide, these gifts to be courageous, these gifts to overcome obstacles. But are we willing to put that same kind of energy in our own family? As, as a biblical man, a gift to provide, a gift to do great things, a gift to be courageous, even within our own family unit. So my clock's on, so it's three o'clock. Am I done at three? It, it, soon. I, had, I don't know who's got the five minutes. So 10 minutes or so. A commitment to God. We want to, we want to be committed to the clock too. Commitment to God honoring labor. So a commitment to God honoring labor is one of those things that, that is pretty fascinating as you think about these biblical men that, that, that also understand. And again, we'll read a passage out of Genesis. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it, right? So this is one of the commissions given to man. And, and, and we understand, yes, womanhood, uh, um, um, they also have a God-honoring labor. But we think this morning about men. We think about these ones. We were walking at Pike Place, I think it was, the other day, and there's like street performers. And it was kind of fascinating. There was this fenced-off area, and there was these, like four men like down in a trench working. You know, I don't know what they were doing for sure, but they were, at least they were looked like they were working. And, and it was just kind of fascinating. I, I kind of wondered, like, it was just a unique thing. You had these street performers and these men that were exhibiting doing labor. And isn't it so true for us men that, like, we live in a world that, like, is becoming, I think, um, may, may, maybe it's by the fact that we have so much um, um, money and wealth and this sort of thing and ease but that maybe we're not as committed to God honoring labor. And I'm not suggesting we should always be in the trenches. I understand labor is going to look like a lot of things for us. But rather that thing that we are committed knowing that as garden dressers, that we're to be involved, that's part of our purpose and place. Again, thinking about another young man that I know that just has no desire to labor. He has no worldview would it makes sense. To him, it's just, a, just an annoyance. But for us, rather, it ought to be something that we can express this creativity, express even this courageousness, um, express um, this, these physical gifts that we have been given to do things like those men in my, in, in my image there at Pike Place. God honoring labor. 1 Corinthians 5, 8, But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. God honoring labor. This labor is to be productive, right? Productive for our families and for our 
our lives. And I think that's one of those things, again, that men can be very tempted with God-honoring labor to turn God-honoring labor into something more like labor to, to, to build up wealth that moth and dust would corrupt. So we have to be careful with some of that, that our gifts would be honed and holy and refined. Proverbs 6, 6, Go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise. A God-honoring man, a, a, a biblical man, is going to be one that is not lazy, but is rather that is wise. Proverbs 26, 13 says, The slothful man saith, There is a lion in the way. There is a lion in the streets. A slothful man basically doesn't have any courage in his passage. A slothful man or a lazy man, he don't even have the courage to face the lion that is coming. But rather with God-honoring labor, may we be provider and protector even in our own homes. The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow up like a cedar in Lebanon. Those that are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. So we men, as we have our commitment to God, we can expect to flourish as we yield over our lives, as we yield over ourselves, as we yield over these masculine gifts that can be so perverse, if not honed, as we yield them over to the Lord, we can expect to flourish. Those that, are, that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God, a tree that grows up with commitment, committed to our God, to, committed to God's law, committed to God's created order, committed to God-honoring labor, and committed to God's family. A strong tree, a beautiful tree, reflecting beauty of holiness. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, in the New King James says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, and act like men, and be strong. Isn't that amazing, that, that acting like men is having faith? Having faith standing firm in the faith with our commitment to God. We're standing firm. We're acting like men. We are to be acting like men. Think about as we close here about cultivating, carefully cultivating biblical manhood. And there's a lot to say here and a lot, a lot of invitation. I think it would be a blessing if we have conversations specifically concerning about inspiring manhood, biblical manhood out of our young men, out of our young boys. Just a couple of thoughts. We think about this tree that grows up. His foundation is God. These commitments to God is building strength. And then we see these branches that are hanging over this tree, this beautiful tree, these branches. We just want to go down through five branches that we see them waving in the wind. These branches are up here and they're providing beauty and they're waving and they're inviting young men to come after them. May our branches, and the allegories will break down quickly, but may our branches wave an invitation to our young boys. Um, reading about the Industrial Revolution and manhood, some have made the observation that the love unit most broken whenever the man left the home was the, was the man-son love unit. That that young little boy who looked up to his father, that that was most broken. And no doubt that it was broken with the wife as well. But there was a very valuable, very valuable presence it is amazing with my young boys. I've come home taking my boys to work. And my response about how those boys act and my wife's response is totally different. They desire to please me. They desire to, 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 to see affirmation. They desire to pull the little wire out. Maybe for no good reason. I just want them to do that. And their eyes just look at you just like for affirmation of a father. May our branches reach out to our young boys. May we as fathers recognize and figure out ways to love them. It's been hard for me. It's been hard for me to process through how to do that. And I'm just so tremendously blessed when that little boy or that young son or that older son looks at me and he's desiring something and it seems like in that moment I'm able to give it to him. But that love unit between the father and the son that's biblical manhood. That's not walking away, chasing after something in the billfold, chasing after some vainglory. That's, that's reaching out with these beautiful limbs, waving and encourage young men to come along behind. Is our love units with our sons 
Just thinking about that, that the love between a father and a son, a man and a son, are they broken by our distractedness? And I think often, I think we, we talked about that in the last session with our wives even, but think about our sons. Well, one way to, as we inspire, as you brothers inspire your sons, they are your most precious disciple. And, and your daughters are as well. You can't really quantify it, but they are one of your most precious disciples. So one branch, may our branch reach toward our sons with love that they would flourish. Another branch we see coming off this tree is may our branches dance in joyful faithfulness. Our sons, not only do they see a work ethic and be taken with them and be, be, be lifted up as big boys and all this sort of thing, but they need to see in us a joyful faithfulness to the Lord. They need to see in us, I believe, that, that our foundation surely is of God and is not something we do begrudgingly, but we joy in the Lord. We read Psalms and it pours out of us, right? We're, we're finding our joy and place in the Lord. I read this stat, and again, stats are, they are what they are, but they can be kind of fun of just windows. Sometimes they confirm our biases, but when a father attends church, there's a 93% chance everybody else in the household will too. I hope it's higher than that in our families by, by, by all means, but you recognize just that little statistic taken that, that a father matters if he joys in the Lord, that that faith is not something we do just because, but it's something we find joy there. Biblical manhood finding joy in the Lord. And expressing that to our young boys. Rejoice. Ecclesiastes 11.9 says this. Rejoice, rejoice, O young man, in thy youth. And let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth. And walk in the ways of thine heart and in the sight of thine eyes. But know thou, for, for all these things God will bring thee unto judgment. Rejoice unto the Lord. I remember um, um, reading a time back by a man by the name of Anthony Bradley. And he was making a case for singing fathers. He was making a case that fathers that sing, and it seems like kind of a simple thing, and, and, and many of us sing, we love to sing, but he was making a case that the fathers that sing, the impact that it has on their young boys. Could it be that biblical manhood looks like singing? I think so. I mean, imagine, what, 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 I mean, what, is it better that a, that, that a father would gather in front of the, his, his favorite ball field team and cheer and root on something else? The son will pick that up as well, no doubt. But singing and praising and just expressing this joy, even in singing. And this Anthony Bradley goes on to make quite a bit of a case about young men being impressionable and young boys of their father singing. So may we continue to sing, brothers. So that's another branch. Our branch is dancing and whistling in the breeze, expressing joyful faithfulness. Another branch we think about off this tree is endurance with gladness and gravity. We're going to go to the, the Lewis's horse and the boy for this one. King Loon and, 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 and C.S. Lewis's the horse and his boy tells his son Cor what kingship is all about. This is a man telling his son what, a, what, what being a king is all about. He says this, this is what it means to be a king, to be first in every desperate attack and last in every desperate retreat. And when there's hunger in the land, as must be now and then in bad years, to wear finer clothes and laugh louder over scantier meals than your, any man in your land. And there's something beauty about a father having joy and even laughter. You know, in our world, there is a tremendous temptation to all sorts of, of comedy that is completely inappropriate. Much comedy is completely inappropriate. But may we as fathers be able to express joy, laughter, and even mirth in our world, in our space. I don't know if that makes sense at all. It does in my own mind. I hope I can convey that in some way or another. But, 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 but showing biblical manhood that we can experience joy and, girth and, and, and beauty and mirth with gladness and gravity, that even this thing of comedy and even this thing of joy can be something that's done appropriately and modeled well. May our branches endure with gladness and gravity. Gla um, gravity and gladness, another couple things I wrote down, are both essential. Without gravity, gladness declines into trivi tri triviality. If you're not glad, the, uh, uh, I'm sorry, without gravity, gladness declines into triviality. And without gladness, gravity denigrates into gloom. Does that make sense? Without gladness, gravity denigrates into gloom. There is a time for us to just be glad. Maybe this goes back to a previous point our brother mentioned about just, 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 just resting 
And, 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 and yes, there's always more. We want more time. We want more of this. We want more of that. But just resting sometimes and, say, and, and just experiencing that with mirth. Gladness with gravity. Another branch we think about coming off these trees, of course, and we'll soon close, is about just a, 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 a branch that is protecting with careful correction. We understand these young men just as we have need careful correction. Proverbs 3.11, we could read many scriptures. Job 5.17, Behold, happy is the man whom, whom God correcteth. Therefore despiseth not thou, thou the chastening of the Almighty. We as we're committed to God, this is something we ought to know, right? That we are, are chastened of the Lord. The, the, the Holy Spirit brings, smites us from time to time in chastening. Well, just as it is with our young sons that we not neglect raising them and correcting them with careful correction. Proverbs 3.11. I, I really like Proverbs 3.11. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction, for whom the Lord loveth. That context there is correction in the midst of the Lord loving. And as we chasten and, and, and correct carefully our sons, may we love them. Another branch we see off this tree is may our branches be strong to encourage confidence and competence. Confidence and competence, right? This is a world of young men, uh, um, uh, again, that are lacking confidence potentially or else have an over-exuberant selfish confidence. May we inspire in our young men and, 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 and work towards inspiring this, this godly confidence and competence. First uh, Timothy 4.12 says this, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word and in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Here, here is competence and confidence initiating, taking risk and bearing the burdens for others. Biblical manhood is going to be, uh, um, it's going to bleed and sacrifice with unconquerable joy. And there's going to be times, as, as, and, I, and, and I have five sons, and I by no means am a, and I, I'm, I'm learning by fire, I guess, about inspiring confidence in my boys. But I think back to those little boys, a little, little son the other day, and he's pulling, he's pulling wire. And it didn't really even matter what the job was. But my job as a father was to tell him it was a good job. My, my job as a father was to give him confidence. And he picked up a three-foot ladder, and the three-foot ladder he could carry, and the six-foot ladder he just kind of drug along. He wanted nothing more than to please me or to fit into that some role, something of like, I'm my father's helper. And may we inspire confidence in our young boys, our young men, speaking words most often of affirmation, Giving them, giving them jobs that they can do, and maybe even sometimes a little bit outside of their reach, giving them confidence and affirmation. Christianity does not strip away the virtues of boyhood, the natural drive many boys have to fight, to compete, to build forts, to win. Christianity does not suppress men's thirst for risk and adventures, Adventure, but redirect it to eternal goals. As we are inspiring them to confidence and competence, we take those gifts, sometimes those things that are frustrating. Sometimes you'll see the boys in some all-out tussle. And how do you take that and turn it into an eternal goal? These are boys that know how to fight. These are young boys that know how to defend themselves. Can you imagine, young boys, and you've seen it, can you imagine when men start to defend the truth, they start to defend their families, they stand up for their wives, and they'll fight and they'll take risk with eternal goals. May our branches be strong to encourage confidence and competence. In conclusion, we just have a couple of, just a statement as we think about what unholy manhood looks like and then what holy manhood looks like. Unholy manhood is a root-rotted plant. It's weak stock. It has no foundation. There's no flourishing fruit. You know it when you see it. Your heart bleeds for it. You're like, wow. The, young men, the, the couple young men in my experience, that, that, this, that, that their experience of manhood just makes you hurt. It's so weak on one hand, and it's so vitriolic on the other hand. It tyrannizes and excludes. Unholy manhood tyrannizes and excludes. 
It bullies and oppresses. It denigrates being and demands performance. It selfishly expects others to conform and hates the feminine. You see it. You know it. And when I read through a list like that, sometimes I recognize in my own heart that I've done things that have oppressed it. That I've, that I've, I've, I've abused or I've overstepped lines and headship and not done in respect to God. There's times I've recognized that, that I've tyrannized even in my own home. I've excluded of bullied. I'd like to think it's very minimal times, but just as you read a list like this, we must as men, it's one more thing I want to say about men before, I, before I'm done, is let's be introspective. Men that are introspective. Men that are willing to consider themselves. Men that are willing to consider their own heart, consider their own plight. Men that, w- that understand that that they have the capacity for sin. And so I think as we think about something like manhood, let us be introspective. However, biblical manhood is defined more beautifully and experienced as a plant fully grown. It rules and defines. It rules and gives definition. It orders and it protects. It cultivates. It respects being and rewards virtuous action. It lovingly disciples others towards maturity and loves the feminine. It's one of those things you know when you see. So men, I don't know where we're at for sure. I don't know how, I, 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 I'm one of them people, I, I, just, I tend to look at all of you and just imagine that we're all just committed to God. And I think that's our heart. But I understand too, sometimes we wrestle. I understand sometimes in any audience there's wrestling that is taking place. But I just want to just remind you again, it's a very simple thing. Be committed to God. When you think about manhood, let its definition come from from God as you are committed to Him. How is our commitment to God? How is our commitment to God's law? Our commitment to God's instruction, right? Our commitment to God's created order. Are we willing to embrace? It's a risky thing. Are we really willing to embrace being the head of our home? How is our commitment to God-honoring labor? Is it something that we just kind of are phoning in? Are we understanding that we're doing this to provide and protect for our our family? How is our commitment to God's family? Ultimately, how is our commitment to being a man? Is Is it informed of the world's ways? I pray it's not. I don't think it is. But I know in my own heart there's, there's areas and there's ways that I recognize that I have been selfish and I have not been a biblical man as I ought to have been. May God bless us as men. As we rise up, we can sing that hymn together. It's a beautiful hymn. We've sang it many times. But that call is still the same today to rise up, men of God. Rise up. Just like that tree that rises up and the experiences and the commitments that give it strength and then those branches, and there could be many that come off of a man that is biblically informed and that God has made him holy. That we might be blameless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and a perverse nation. May God bless you men, and all of us as men, as we think about those things. I'm always excited about thinking about generational, the generational work of God And it is vital that we be men of God in our generation if we imagine the next generation is going to be well-suited. And God needs to be gracious and He needs to provide wisdom and He'll provide the strength. But it is a beautiful calling that we've been called to as we think about biblical manhood. May God have His blessing.